You are listening to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann. This is episode 1611, Permanent Multiculture. My guest today is Robin Mello, the program director for Philadelphia Orchard Project. And we take a deeper look at her life, work, and thoughts within and beyond that project, which she provided a brief overview to in episode 1609, an introduction to the Philadelphia Orchard Project. Give that episode a listen to learn more about how this nonprofit installs orchards throughout the city of Philadelphia. But first, stick around and learn a bit more about Robin. I've known her for many years, after meeting in Philadelphia during a presentation given by Peter Bain at the Aubrey Arboretum, alongside the executive director of Philadelphia Orchard Project, Phil Forsyth. Along the way, we've kept in touch as I continue to follow her work in urban permaculture. Not only is Robin an amazing permaculturist, she is also a musician with the Radicans and an organizer for Beardfest. Before we begin, I'd like to thank the sponsors who, along with you, the listener, help keep this show going and growing. In addition to The Good Seed Company, the sponsors of the day are Permi Kids and Your Garden Solution. Permi Kids, run by the incredible Jen Mendez, is a resource to inspire and nurture those teachers, parents, and families interested in incorporating permaculture education into the lives of children in their community or at home. Through the site, Jen offers a free, ongoing podcast where you can learn about transitioning to a rich, ecologically sound life that includes children and learning at every step of the way. If you want to dive deeper, you may be interested in her Community Experiential Education by Design program or the Edge Alliances. Find out more at permikids.com. Your Garden Solution is a Pennsylvania company run by a permaculture practitioner and their business partner that helps people to garden using the techniques developed by Mel Bartholomew and popularized in his book, Square Foot Gardening. In addition to garden installations and education, they also have an excellent soil mix and prepared compost ready for your raised garden beds. Find out more at yourgardensolution.org. If you'd like to get involved with the podcast, become a listener member on Patreon, follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and share your favorite episodes with your friends, family, and fellow practitioners, or better yet, listen to a show with them. Now then, let's jump in with Robin, who starts with her biography and background, You know, I've traced it back at this point to being a really little kid that was fortunate enough to have some fruit trees in my backyard. I grew up in South Jersey and I had a huge sweet cherry tree hanging over my driveway and a pear tree and a couple of plum trees and a couple um, pie cherry trees. And nobody, they were there before my family moved in. Nobody did anything with them, but the cherry tree was like the symbol of my childhood. I would, I spent all my time in it. But then many years went by as I was in junior high and high school and I just didn't, I stopped paying attention to those things. I got really, really sucked into the academic world. And for from the time I was probably 15 to 22 or 23, I was completely really obsessed with learning about African and Afro-Cuban and Afro-Caribbean culture. I, all through high school, was involved in Model UN and was really just interested in learning about all the things that nobody had ever taught me about. That's something that's been a current throughout my whole life. So as as a teenager, it translated to um, African culture, anything and everything. And when I went to college, immediately found an opportunity to travel to South Africa with a couple of seniors uh, at the time. And that 
threw me into doing a lot of independent work. I studied sociology and political science and African studies uh, at the University of Delaware. And while, you know, I thought that my whole life would be spent as a, an expat, as someone who was doing international work, I did a lot of work with returning immigrants and people who were coming, returning to Sierra Leone uh, for about se- for about seven months. I did an internship with the United Nations and the international the International Organization for Migration in Sierra Leone, and I thought I would do that for forever. Something you know, like working to uh, reverse the brain drain. That was a lot of the work that I did. I did a lot of, and I studied African Revolution all throughout college, and. When I was in Sierra Leone, and then when I went back and did a little bit more work in Ghana, I just realized that it was not where I was supposed to be. I mean, I'm I'm a white woman from New Jersey, and I was working on really what I still believe was a really wonderful project, but it wasn't my role to be the one fill. I, the role that I was filling was not a role I should have been filling. So I backed out and had this existential crisis. You know, as a senior in college, and during that time, realized that I also didn't know how to take care of myself, like really take care of myself. I didn't know anything. <laughs> and and I'm supposed to be, you know, one of the best and brightest. And it just kind of blew my mind. So I learned about all of the products that I was using, um, the chemicals that are in, you know, all of the things that we put on our bodies and in our bodies all the time. I started learning how to cook. And one day I cut open a green pepper and saw all the seeds inside and a light bulb went on. I was like, I wonder if these seeds would grow into something. And I planted all of them and I had like 80 pepper plants a couple of weeks later. <laughs> and it, like me and my housemates uh, at the time, we just blew our minds. And um, really that started a lot. And then I, you know, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life. So I moved to Philly, found the cheapest apartment I could find in South Philly. And then started growing a bunch of things in containers and learned very quickly how hard container gardening is. And it was a failure. The, the first year that I tried to really grow anything, it was like really beautiful, but I didn't get any food. So then I walked a few blocks away from my house and found, this was in South Philly, found a, a almost an entire block that was vacant and knocked on all the doors on the block. And I said, hey, how would you guys feel if I started a garden here and would you be interested in helping? And like, would it be okay if other people came? And everybody said, sure, like pretty much, you know, we think you're crazy, but you can do whatever you want because those lots have been vacant for like 15 years and they were full of mattresses and carpets and toilets and box springs and everything you could possibly think of and probably lots of things you wouldn't want to think of. And a group of friends and I, um, people who I'm still friends with, just cleaned them all out and neighbors came and helped us also and said it was like the most amazing thing that, you know, it's the best the block had looked in a really long time. Um, and that birthed uh, Mercy Edible Park, um, which we also lovingly call Meep. And that's in South Philly. And that was the first food forest I didn't know anything about, really anything about growing at all. And But I had learned about, I'd started reading about permaculture and agroforestry and figured that I needed to just do it because how else am I going to figure it out? So I did. And it was just like, it was magic. One thing after the other, after the other, meeting the right people, getting the plants for free, um, meeting Phil. So we called that, that project. It was a, like the kind of guerrilla gardening, little 
sister project to um, the Philadelphia Orchard project. It was, you know, a bunch of people, a bunch of volunteers taking over vacant lots with community groups. And, and the Philadelphia Orchard Project can't do that in it, you know, legally and in its mission, we, me- we need to work with land holding organizations or, or groups that have long-term access. And for me and the people I was working with, it was about community empowerment and like just showing people that there is an alternative to these vacant lots on your block. If you're interested, you know, we never went in and like just did stuff without asking. It was always being asked to come in. Um, which is a big, a big thing, but yeah, Philly food forest was, was a really wonderful project. And I learned a lot from Phil throughout that and also volunteered, started volunteering with the Philadelphia orchard project at that time. It was in 2010. And then, you know, the just started kind of project after project we did occupy vacant lots came out of that, um, trying to galvanize a bunch of people who didn't know where to really throw their activism, you know, um, especially, after being involved in such an intense thing as as the Occupy Encampment, um, trying to just put your life back together and do something, really do something that's going to make a difference and get out into the communities and start spreading the messages that we wanted to spread. And that a bunch of us realized that gardening was one of the answers to do that, just building community. It's a It's a conduit for so many things. So yeah, that's... That's really like a big part. You know, I also did some farming off grid for a year and then moved back to the city um, because I realized that I couldn't be off grid. I wasn't ready for that. Um, I wasn't ready to just leave all everything behind. And it didn't seem like it was the impact that I wanted to make at that point in my life as a 25 year old. So I moved back to Philly and very quickly thereafter was given the opportunity to start working with the Orchard Project. Did you find in starting things like the Mercy Edible Park, Philly Food Forest, Occupy Vacant Lots, that your experience in sociology and doing expat work and things like that provided you the skill set that was needed to go and knock on the doors and ask those questions? Absolutely. I think that one of the biggest barriers to doing community work and to like to really finding the answers that you need if you're going to start a project or if you're interested motivated to start a project one of the biggest and the most important things to do is to talk to people and we are terrified as a society of talking to strangers you know people who we live next door to people especially people who look different than us and that's always been something that's like been confounding to me um and of course um you know my university work definitely taught me, uh, I guess, like informed all of the work that I've done for sure. But I'm pretty sure that the reason that I chose those things, I chose those studies because it's what came naturally to me. And I thought a lot about this academically, you know, all of the things I could have done, I could have gone into biology or biochemistry, or, you know, I'm fascinated by genetics, horticulture, of course, but for me, it was kind of the path of least resistance to be able to do whatever I wanted to do. And I still feel pretty good about that. Just kind of like bushwhacking my way through life, you know, doing what it is that comes naturally, but then forming it in a way that it is exactly what I want to do. A lot of the conversations that I've had with folks who are interested in pursuing permaculture and doing a lot of this kind of work, and I know that I speak some from my own background is that you do a lot of questing 
because of of living within the particular culture that we come from, having certain stories that we're a part of and think that are the the route that we should go. You know, what is what does a job look like? What does a career look like? What all those things mean? And as we answer those within the context of that larger culture, it provides a given answer. But then when we start exploring our own life and finding those places where we're really good at something, that very often that's not the road that we're led down. And it seems like many of the conversations that I have with people within permacultures, there's like a decade of pursuit and travel. And yet it sounds like you kind of started on a path. It was just, where did you wind up? That the the person who you were and what your calling was, was always there. It was just, how would that actually manifest? Do you see those two paths, the personal and the professional, being parallel now? Or is there still kind of a, a gap between them, between what you're personally called and empowered to do versus what the mission and vision of the Orchard Project is required to do? It's a, it's a funny question because it's something that is, I sometimes think is, is the greatest blessing and is sometimes, you know, kind of maddening is that my I feel like my whole life up until now has been I've been trying to create a life in which work is play and play is work and home is work and work is home and everything informs everything else and when things are going really really well that is exactly what it is everything is everything else everything makes everything else better and it's been really interesting. I, I feel as if I have absolutely created my own career. Phil Forsyth is the executive director of the Philadelphia Orchard Project, and he is, you know, such a, a magical being in my life. The opportunity that I was given to work with the Orchard Project and to really just kind of figure it out, you know, just like, well, I don't know, like we know what you we want you to do but we also want to hire you for this position because we know that you are going to figure it out just you know help us grow the organization and that has been it really has been magical and i've also been able to grow the position rather rapidly um i started in i think april 2014 and started off at you know i think 8 hours a week and was just like all right and that's fine i've i've spent my whole adult life learning how to do a lot with a little. That's a huge part of of this world that we're a part of is how do you do the things you do with as little money as possible, you know? And <laughs> it's a fun game. I mean, sometimes it's not fun at all, of course, but it's when you can learn, it, it, it informs so many things when you can figure out how to live a really, really full, joyous life with not a lot of currency. But the position quickly grew, you know, as as funding was made available. And at this point, you know, last year I was given the opportunity to work full 40 hours a week. And I chose to stay at 30 hours, partially because I am not really, at least at this point in my life, I'm not interested in 40-hour-a-week 40, 40 work. I'm interested in a part-time or, you know, more part-time work so that I can do all of the other things that I do. And I don't need the money that comes with a 40-hour uh, a 40 hour a week job. You know, I, I own this house um, that we're sitting in right now. And, and the fact that I'm able to do that with the kind of work that I've done is also kind of a miracle, you know, and that I feel comfortable with that. I 
also play music. I play a lot of music. And as time goes on, I've been playing more and more and, you know, just wanting that to also inform my life and uh, act as a way that I can spread the messages that we're trying to, to spread. Uh, and, and I, and it works. And, you know, I also just have a very, you know, need to fix up this house and need to, to figure out other projects and help other people with projects. And, you know, that takes a lot of time. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like you found a pretty good balance between what you were looking for and what you have. And that's really encouraging for me. And I believe a lot of other people because plenty of folks who love permaculture, love this idea of living regeneratively and restoring the earth and leaving this place that we call home better for the next generation, especially the ones that are parents. But they've gotten into that. I work to pay for the property that I bought because that's where I want to have my dream. But now I don't have the time to take care of that property to build it to what I want it to be. Mm -hmm. And it becomes this strange lockstep of how do I let go of these other things to be able to do the, the pieces that I really want to. Mm -hmm. And... I think that that financial piece is one of the hardest things to overcome because capital, financial capital is what seems to be the value by which others may judge. And in many cases, people wind up judging their own self-worth because of how much money they have in the bank or what they can and can't do, as opposed to looking at all the other forms of capital that come from being in community, knowing that you're never going to be hungry or that, okay, maybe things are a little tight right now. Can I take on a roommate? Is that something that I feel comfortable with? Is there somebody who I know because of relationships that I've built to come in? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think that I fall victim to it as well. I mean, just as much as anyone else, the the need for money, the need to make money, um, the structure of our society, the way that it's set up, makes it pretty impossible to not make money. You know, you still need to pay taxes, regardless of whether you own everything else in your life completely outright. You know, I am completely opposed to debt. I really am. Um, but, you know, and I've done everything in my power to make it so that I don't have debt. I've been I've also been extremely fortunate to not have debt. That That's something that I should I mean, for transparency's sake, I I had a full ride to college. I think that me going to school for free was the thing that opened up this amazing world because I didn't have to worry about that. I didn't have to worry about coming out of school, being in my you know, early 20s and realizing that I have $100,000 that I need to pay somebody back. And I know so many people who have done that. You know, I'm also extremely privileged just by the very nature of the color of my skin and the world that I was born into. I never had to live in poverty. You know, I don't know what that feels like, really. I mean, I have lived in poverty as an adult, but that was really largely a conscious decision. And for me to even have that privilege to be able to do that is, is ridiculous. Right. So, you know, I, I think that it's a conversation that I can't even begin to, like, figure out the answers to. But my friends and I have recently been talking about how much we really need to, quote unquote, break up with capitalism. And... It's so ingrained in all of us that we, as people who think about it all the time and as people who have crafted our lives very intentionally to continue to grow away from the things that we don't believe in, we still, you know, can't imagine what that world looks like. It's so ingrained in us 
that we can't figure out what an alternative to this capitalist society looks like. And that is what permaculture, the permaculture community is falling, has been falling victim to, is not necessarily looking at, you know, really, really looking hard at ourselves, really looking hard at the things that make us want to turn this like professional permaculture world into something that we're trying to replace. There are so many other options. There are infinite options as to what, what world we could create, but we are so afraid. We are so afraid and we are so angry and we are so hurt and we have so many generations of trauma that we need to get over as individuals and as families and as communities and as a a nation and a globe that it's pretty unfathomable. And I think that taking a lot of time to really, really dig into that, although it's very hard, is what everyone needs to do. And it's really what the permaculture community needs to do. It's what visionary communities really need to take a really like take a hard look at themselves. And what is it that you're actually perpetuating? What you just touched on is very much something that I've been exploring the last several months in my own journey in having visited some folks who are living in community together intentionally, very hard, who are having these conversations. And as you and I were discussing before we started the conversation today about how much energy it takes to live with intent Mm -hmm. and that these kinds of conversations are draining Mm -hmm. and they're big, they're hard, they're deep, Mm -hmm. but it's easy to gloss over those kinds of things and go, well, I'm just going to grow plants and that's where it ends. And one of the things that I still continue to struggle with are those parts of permaculture that are only in the last two or three years really being talked about. The social and economic systems. How do we grow beyond just growing food? And being honest about, as you were talking about your privileges of education and not having those debt and some of those things. And I know my own choice and background that if I wanted to, I could spend six months going off and getting some certifications, go back into IT and make a ton of money and be able to turn my back on all of this. I can choose to live in poverty as a war tax resistor if I want to, because I don't have to make it day to day because I have the resources and people who I can lean on or lean into or ask for help. And yeah, I think that if we're really going to, as a community of practitioners really bring about change that we have to start talking about this. We have to figure out the ways, how can we use something like Toby Hemingway's current current work about living in cities, which really, when you read that book, it's rather subversive because it's about how do we go and live in cities with other people and essentially work on dismantling those structures. And well, how do we kind of break that down so that yes, we might still be within the confines of that city when it comes the way lines are drawn on a map, but we're living in a neighborhood where we know all of our neighbors, where they're they're not strangers. And when we don't see somebody walk out of their door for three or four days, somebody goes and knocks and checks on them. And how in doing so, we remove that need for capital. We remove that need for capitalism and begin to actually build this framework for something different within the culture that already exists. It's big, it's scary, and it it's frightening to jump and to go, I want, I'm going to live different or I'm going to do something that is totally counter. Because where do you find the support? Because for so long, capital was an easy way to insulate ourselves from those questions mm-hmm. and from others. I have very consciously chosen to live in places 
since I was able to make those decisions that other people consider dangerous. I'm not exactly sure why, but I have, I've been drawn to that and it has shown me generally when I leave those places that I don't feel comfortable. I feel as if, well, someone at a really wonderful radical poetry conference that I went to called Split This Rock, this woman said, as she was experiencing a very, very dangerous situation, uh, the person that she was with said, sometimes the most dangerous places are the safest. And I heard that line and it, it hit me so hard. I immediately started crying. I think that that is so true. The places that where we come up against our fears and the ability to, to cross over that line opens up immense freedom. And, and I also think that high density living is, has actually shown me way more community than, you know, when I grew up in the suburbs and when I visit the suburbs and when I lived in a more rural area for a short period of time. The community around me in Philadelphia is so real. It's so tangible. It doesn't always come about in the most common of ways. But it's it's really remarkable because of that. People do look out for each other. My neighbors totally look out for me from day one when I moved in here. I'm one of just a couple of white people on this block, and it's always been that way um, wherever I've lived in the city. And it's not been a problem. It's been a really great way of starting conversations. You know, Philadelphia is an incredibly diverse and I, you know, I like to say like a, a really gritty city. It's a city that where there's tons and tons of love, but it's, it's like under many layers of really like calloused skin. And I think that it's just, you know, a matter of figuring out what people are good at, what people want to talk about, what people don't want to talk about, establishing like a kind of common belief system that you can then move outward from. Um, and I think that, you know, going back to the idea of living with intention or doing everything with intention, having really difficult conversations becomes way easier. This is something that I just this year really have been trying to own. Anytime you have a difficult conversation, especially if it's about things that feel out of your control, such as systemic racism, which is, you know, something that I'm banging my head against the wall about all the time, is that these conversations are not personal. And if you take a conversation that is systemic, uh, that is about a systemic issue, if you take a conversation and make it personal, you're never going to grow. You're never going to move and progress towards the future that we're all talking about wanting. You're going to have to make sacrifices. You're going to have to hurt a lot. But establishing the understanding that having a difficult conversation is out of love makes it so that those things can, those conversations can happen. It happens to me all the time where, you know, I start getting like in my own head about these conversations that are, that are very difficult to have. And, and then I realize that it's like all for growth. It's all for a future that we're trying to, to create. And, you know, I don't, I think that most people don't know how to, how to do that how to really take the, the difficult conversations and make them realize that how, how much bigger they are than just us, you know, our like tiny 
minuscule little specks of humanity that we are in this like massive universe. <laughs> in the role of storyteller and a lot of the work that I do, it's all filtered through the space that I come from. And in the beginning, a lot of the hard conversations were very personal, especially when talking about big things like systemic racism or poverty or school to prison system, some of these pipelines that exist mm -hmm. within the United States. And it took a lot to let go to understand that the way that language is being used in order to have these conversations is not about me, mm -hmm. but it's about us as a society and these different roles that are played and the way in which certain things are perpetuated but also have the potential to be changed at the same time by just being aware of it and being able to do that internal work that begins to end things like racism or sexism or oppression in ourselves mm -hmm. by understanding the way that a, a certain phrase can be offensive to someone without knowing it. Mm -hmm. To understand the cultural context in which things have occurred within the United States depending on the era and the time period and how even though in the United States right now we may feel that we're you know in a post-race society and all these other things yet at the same time anytime you turn on the news these same issues are still occurring and being able to step back and feel comfortable to step up and go I have no idea how I can help but I have an interest in doing so for me, one of the hardest things is because the way that I was raised as a man by my family is you fix things. It's you just put everything aside and you fix it. Whatever it is, you find a way to do that. And it was only in coming to some of these bigger questions that it became one of those, I don't know how to fix it. And the solutions that I'm offering are not actually answers. And being able to really say, how can I be an ally? Mm -hmm. And understanding that if someone says, um, right now you can't be or right now this is a space that you're not wanted understanding that that's not directed at me and that there are other places to engage and to be able to do work but this is of course me still working through a lot of my own personal ignorance as i come to understand this sure. because i was raised in such a way that it was honoring the individual and as a result of that was not well versed in many many of these larger systemic structures until very recently to become aware, become clear to me. And I'm just left going, I have no clue. What do I do? Yeah. Well, I think that becoming aware of the fact that you have no clue is, is a big first step. Um, you know, <laughs> you know, realizing that there is even an issue is a big thing because many people either actively or passively just have chosen to remain ignorant. I think that yeah, being an ally is really just trying to approach every person, every situation as if every person is your friend or your family member. Sometimes your family member doesn't want you around. Sometimes being alone is the best, you know, sometimes just creating a space like literally or figuratively just kind of like making a wall for other people to process is a huge thing. I feel like I try to manifest that as much as possible, kind of creating a space, allowing for there to be an, an opening for others to have conversations or to be quiet or to grieve or to, you know, rejoice. And that is a big, I think, you know, that's a, a really great way of looking at it. You know, 
treating every stranger as if they are maybe, you know, they're your mother or your brother or your best friend and realizing that you can't always be a savior. And in fact, that's the opposite of what most people need, even if they think they need it. I can try to loop this back to, you know, Philadelphia Orchard Project work because I think some of the things that I've realized about myself and my own work just this year through actually finally taking some some permaculture training because it wasn't until 2015 that I did that. Um, I took my PDC and I took a teacher training with uh, Pandora Thomas and then did an advanced teacher training, uh, advanced permaculture design with Peter Bain. And that was all in 2015 and, you know, met a ton of really amazing people in the process. And what I learned through meeting all of those people is, you know, this, the social side of permaculture that isn't, that is still this kind of new thing that we're grappling with and probably the hardest uh, because it has to deal with people and it has to deal with emotions and like the, the like gushy, like nitty gritty stuff um, that we can't wrap our intellectual technological minds around. I've learned that I do see things differently just by the very nature of where I live and the situations that I've either accidentally or intentionally found myself in. Myself in. <laughs> and the, the Philadelphia Orchard Project is just one piece of a puzzle that can bring what I would like to refer to as a permanent multiculture. You know, I don't like the idea of a permanent culture. I don't want to live in a monoculture. We're trying to get away from monocropping in agriculture. So why are we just talking about a permanent culture as opposed to a permanent polyculture of cultures? This the, a multicultural world. We cannot live in a world that is just one culture. It's it will never work. And if that has been the mindset, even accidentally, since the permaculture movement started, we really missed the boat. And I think that that's one of the pieces that's missing in our conversation is that I believe it's in the designer's manual, as much as I refer to that now more as a historical text than a modern actual design manual, that Mollison talked about the need for a million villages. Well, if we're going to build a million villages, they're all going to be different because they're they're going to be bioregionally placed and focused and we're not going to be growing everything everywhere yet. I see more and more of the push within permaculture towards international development, international work. You know, I'm going to get this training, then I'm going to go somewhere else and do this, or I'm going to move. And it's been an ongoing conversation within the central Pennsylvania permaculture practitioners about staying in place. Mm -hmm. There's this line that a listener gave to me, which I keep bringing up, that they refer to referred to as the blap. Brooklyn, Boulder, LA, Asheville, Portland. Uh-huh. That so many people <laughs> will pass through an area and then not find what they're looking for and then move. Whereas it's like, no, we, ha- we have all these people who want to care and love for you to help you do what you want to do. But because that doesn't exist already, they go to somewhere else where it is. Where it's already happening. Right. And I don't think that there's necessarily anything wrong with creating, trying to create utopias within certain areas of the country. I have many friends who have gone to those places, to those very, to those specific places that you mentioned. And it hurts every time it happens. I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm getting left behind or something a little bit, but I've learned that that isn't really the, it's not really the way to look at it. You know, I think that some people need the community to already be in place and also improve those communities. Lord knows they're not perfect. 
And I have just found that I took a little pilgrimage uh, before I started Philly Food Forests, and I just I just left this. I left Philly and ended up ride sharing throughout the Northwest, um, going to a bunch of national forests, spent time in Olympia and in Portland and a little bit in Seattle and then a, a bunch of in, uh, Northern California and a bunch of national forests all in that area. And also have been to Denver and completely fell in love with Denver and Boulder. Um, I've been there briefly, but I realized like very quickly, not my place, not my home, too homogenous. And I'm also like way too East Coast which I didn't know until I went to the Midwest and the West Coast. I could be the softest East Coaster there is. I'm still going to be way too aggressive. (laughs) And I've learned that that's something that I don't want to drop. You know, I like my attitude. I use it when when I need it. And this does feel like home. I don't know that, you know, I don't know that I'll live in this house or in Philadelphia forever. I probably won't. But I made a very conscious decision to stay here. I grew up 15 minutes away. I made a very conscious decision to stick to my community and continue to build in this place that has been my home forever. There's a lot of things that we do when we uproot ourselves that I don't think people even, I don't even know if people know the repercussions of those, you know, those things personally. You know, there's, there's like spirits in a place that we grow up around and there's something to be said for comforts, for like home, comforts of home and also the things that are really, really painful about home, not running away from those things. On this topic where we've kind of gone about personal space and growth within the permaculture community and building community, do you have any final thoughts for this part of our conversation? I think that one of the things that since I started this work and now work with the Philadelphia Orchard Project, the thing that we do really well is create space the thing that we are learning and that we will continue to be learning for many years is how to really contribute to the food system. There's a lot of people that are doing that and they're doing it really well. And at this point, we're still a young enough organization that we don't really know what the yields are going to be from our community orchards. I can pretty confidently say that as an organization, we don't think that the orchards that we have as of yet are really going to contribute to the volume of food that we need to create, but they are definitely adding to very important conversations and they're creating space for community gatherings. They're creating space for education. They're creating space for people to learn what they already know and, you know, to learn what they don't know. But I think that one of the things that's been greatest for me, especially when dealing with really diverse populations is showing people that they already have the memory and the understanding of how to tend spaces, how to steward spaces, that these spaces feel more comfortable for a reason, you know, because they are in being attached to a piece of earth is in our bones. It's in our genetic codes. You know, we came from this soil and we will return to it. And that is the the essence of what I think, you know, why I do what I do is, is creating space, providing a vision for a space and allowing other people to dream onto it as well. You know, sometimes, especially for people who have lived in the same place 
for their whole lives, maybe for generations. You know, some people in Philly who I've met almost never leave their block. I've met some kids, you know, who are within four blocks of Broad Street who have never been to Broad Street, you know, young kids. But there are there are a lot of people who don't leave their neighborhoods. And if you live in a space for a really long time, you lose the ability to think about what it could be, especially, you know, the vacant lots, which is where I, you know, what I see. So providing a vision, you know, just allowing for that is something that I have found I'm, I'm really good at and is something that I feel is my contribution. You know, not saying, oh, this is what it has to look like, but just being like, did you, have you ever thought about this maybe being something else? And then letting somebody else dream onto it. And then providing examples of what they can look like, you know, with my side yard. I've barely done anything to it, but my neighbors love it. And I'm hoping that over time they will realize that it is their side yard too. I'm hoping to keep it an open space. You know, this summer I had a table out there and one of the best days I can remember was coming home super tired from work one day and looking out the kitchen window and seeing four women from different houses on the block sitting at the table after, you know, at the end of a work day. It was like the best thing I've ever seen. I walked outside and I said, I don't want to bother you, but I just need to tell you how happy I am right now that you're all sitting here. And, you know, and then I hung out with them, of course, but it was awesome. And that that's where change comes from. And that's how it's one of the ways in which, you know, I don't think gentrification has to be a bad thing. I think that coming in and being a part of a change for a community that's already in existence is very, very healthy. But it involves a lot of time and a lot of difficult conversations and not necessarily money. And what it is about in Philly so often is who has the most money and who can throw it around the fastest to make the biggest change happen. And it destroys, it destroys communities. It destroys like the actual physical structure of the space also. You know, the roads around here are heinous because of all the development that's been happening, you know, within a few blocks of here. You know, I can't ride my bike safely around here. <laughs> and that's a way I believe that the that conversation has to happen over and over and over again about how to make gentrification not a bad word or figure out, you know, maybe a new word. Thank you, Robin, for joining me for this portion of our conversation, exactly where I thought we would go, because I never really plan where we're going to go. But I thank you for introducing a lot of these ideas, because they're the hard kind of conversations that I feel that we need to be having in order to really advance not only permaculture to build the framework of this world that we want to live in, but also in turn to influence the culture that we're currently a part of to make a difference. Thanks. And that was Robin Mello. Find out more about her and her permaculture work at phillyorchards.org or via the links in the show notes, which include her band page with the Radicans and to Beardfest. If you're working in an urban environment or interested in starting your own projects utilizing abandoned urban lots or anything in between, get in touch. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com or drop something in the mail, The Permaculture Podcast. P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Until the next time, spend each day living your life in a way that takes care of Earth, yourself, and each other. <laughs>